0: Full show uh, lined up as well as the music and banter. We've got uh, a couple of, we've got a giveaway um, coming up later on, so stay tuned for that. Have your subscriber card ready. Um, And we have a special guest today. We have um, Dr. Hannah Rapp, I just almost called you Dr. (laughs) Hannah Rapp, I won't even do that. Dr. Hannah Robert.
1: Yeah, From La Trobe
0: University, uh, in, and she'll be joining us in the first segment um, a little bit later to talk about a a High Court decision that came down uh, this past week. Um, People may have understood it as the robert mason case and um it raises all sorts of legal issues and it's a great intersection between where law and medicine and technology and modern Mm. parenting and family structures sort of come together so we've got a um a great conversation coming up there um later in the show i'll be doing my latest installment on the self-help um, regime. This time I'm going to be looking at self help as it relates to the psychology of um, productivity. Ah. Yeah. Um. And uh, Cyber Sue, you've got an item for us, also very topical, uh, coming up in uh, the second segment.
1: I do, I do, but it's also um, interesting you're going to talk about productivity because I also want to touch on the New Zealand budget, which doesn't sound very health-like, but
0: Oh, but it yeah. does, it, it does. Um, but what's the segment you've got? Uh,
1: oh, well, of course, the law came out on Wednesday, voluntary assisted dying, mm. and um, I kind of was because it's brand new nobody kind of knows exactly what it's going to look like so i did a little bit of a scout around and found out about um what's been done overseas so i thought i might have a little chat All about right, that
0: we'll do that later <laughs> on in the show um but as tradition dictates we'll be back in a moment with uh, the news
1: doctor, doctor.
0: And we're back, radiotherapy, panel beater and Cyber Sioux in the studio. Now you um, just gave us a little hint of your news item <laughs> a moment ago, and New Zealand.
1: Yeah. So the budget came out, and um, what was kind of very interesting about that is that, as, as I said, it's not typically a health item, but they're doing it differently with um, St. Jacinda, as I hear her being called now, and... Um, you know many countries around the world they've been looking at different ways of measuring their success um to better reflect the well-being of their people but in New Zealand their budget's going further and they're actually putting well-being at the center of everything that they do and i just think well Wow.
0: (laughs) It's uh, pretty impressive, isn't it? it, um, We've done a a segment in the past on um, the the happiness index Mm, mm. that was initiated by Bhutan.
1: Exactly. um,
0: And it's been picked up in different ways um, around the world. How's New Zealand approaching it?
1: Well, um, rather than kind of being tokenistic, it seems that they're really putting it at the centre of everything they do. So any bid that goes to government for funding, they actually have to address how it is that... um, how how they're addressing this new framework um because they know that um yeah the gdp is quite strong so gdp being the um traditional global measure of success is how much money we're making as a country they know they're doing that quite well but at the same time um you know suicide rates are really high homelessness um child poverty and family violence are I'm um, in a pretty surprisingly desperate state in New Zealand.
0: So they've put metrics in place that, to address those under this idea of um, yeah, national happiness. Yeah, and any wellbeing.
1: any any kind of um, submission for funding has to look at the um, for example the it has to look at mental health and taking mental health seriously. It has to look at child child well-being. It also has to support Maori and Pacific um, aspirations and help to really strengthen those communities. Um, Building a productive um, nation. So, for example, um, supporting startups and innovative new ideas, um, low carbon. Um, uh, you know, looking at the carbon footprint and so on, and transforming the economy in including climate, uh, fresh water, um, and investing in New Zealand. Um, in as a whole, and as a people, like hospitals and um, schools, cancer screening, all these sorts of things. So, how
0: is investing in schools and hospitals distinguished under this approach from investing in schools and hospitals otherwise?
1: Well, I think I think the difference is, is that every every submission has to address this framework. So, right. it, so it's. The, the aim is to reduce these silos so you haven't got um, all sorts of things happening that, in many ways, are competing with each other. The other thing they're doing is um, ra- it seems that rather than having these one year high turnover projects that don't really deliver, um, yeah. because you can't, how much can you do in a year? Yeah. Is that they're uh, having four years for de- delivering on a project so. a
0: couple of things occur to me i mean she's her approval rating is so um uh well certainly globally her approval rating is really high i gather there's a couple of um waves being made at home mm. but um nevertheless it's still much higher than we've experienced in australia for a yes. while in terms of um our prime minister's approval rating mm. um and so now would be, if you're going to do something as aspirational as that, now would be the time. You'd have that Certainly. leverage, wouldn't you? Isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I just love the way yeah. that the language about it is about the economy serving the people rather than people serving the economy. True. Um, and, you know, that language that, oh, this decision or that decision will be good for the economy, mm. it, it, it always makes me uncomfortable. You, you understand the spirit of what somebody's saying there you know that it might generate jobs or Mm. um, or what have you. It's kind of
1: more built in and more of an ownership and a togetherness about it. Yeah yeah
0: if you treat treat the job of policy making as one to serve people rather than one to serve some abstract notion like an economy um, you're going to come up with different solutions aren't you?
1: That's right maybe people feel a little bit more um, perhaps personally responsible and understanding of where there might be a cost to something but maybe theres a we're in it together type of feel
0: about it that's brilliant that's a nice cheery way yeah. to to kick off um kick off radiotherapy this morning i've got a couple of um uh couple of just very brief news items that caught my eye during the week. Um, one a little um, random, but the first one is a, an article that Emeril Barici, who many people will know as the, um, as the host uh, of um, various programs on the ABC, a journalist at various times, I think now is Chief Economic Correspondent maybe. Um, anyway, unrelated to that specific role, um, I gather from the article she posted this week that she's recently moved house and um, and in the early stages of using her new kitchen, she's used a blender um, and, oh, and, and had to have surgery, immediate surgery because she almost lost a finger. Anyway, so um, household accidents happen all the time. But why this one caught my eye is that she was linking this experience to stress Mm -hmm. and um, pointing out just how stressful moving house is. Yes. And it it really is, isn't it? I mean, I've now been in my place for um, uh, over a year, um, but... um, any time I've, I've had to move in the past, it's been really, really stressful. And she also the other aspect of it, uh, the reason why stress comes into it is she talks about this absent-mindedness and the um, experience of habit. And when you're in a stressful state, um, you look to habit. Mm-hmm. And in this new kitchen, um, the cord for the blender, the handheld blender, um, is close enough to the sink that... You can wash it. Yeah, right. Uh, whereas oh, in her oh. old Still kitchen, she had to unplug it. Oh. So the cut finger mm. in the cleaning process turns out to be the glass half full version of the story um, because the glass half empty is that she could have um, electrocuted herself. Um, and, and you know, if this is the, this is just a takeaway lesson to, to keep an eye on our stress levels, especially if routines and habits are changing. Isn't it? I thought about this in relation to um, an accident I had about all, uh, almost two years ago. I guess um, I was riding home on my bike. Um, it was dark, um, and I was. Riding on a trip, people may know, the St George's Road um, bike path. And it's a ride that I've done millions of times. Um, maybe not quite millions. You're
1: yeah, always exaggerating. <laughs> a few, yeah.
0: um, But so often I did the really naughty thing of putting headphones on. Mm. And it was night. And I may have been coming back from the pub <laughs> after watching the footy. Um, so I probably wasn't in, you know, perfect Tip-top shape. Yeah. Um, But I took for granted the routine. The issue was that at the time they were doing a lot of roadworks on there and I just wasn't paying attention. Yeah. I was just riding in a straight line. So I cracked a rib and broke my wrist and um, became a cropper and um, I was only about 150, 200 metres earlier than a tram. Oh, wow. um, yeah.
1: And I mean, they say that, don't they, that accidents happen usually closest to home closest for to exactly home. that reason. And when you're just feeling yeah.
0: comfortable and yeah. familiar with things. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So there was that one that caught my eye. The other one... Um, it's actually a, uh, a, a, a an article published in the Journal of Social, Psychological and Personality Science that caught my eye this week. A whole journal? Wow. Man. Well, no, not the <laughs> whole journal, just this particular article. Now, uh, you'll get the gist just by the title of the article. It is, Foodie Calls, When Women Date Men for a Free Meal oh. Rather Than a Relationship. Oh. Um, so... It, it's basically drawing a contrast. They're, they're calling them um, foodie calls, which is obviously a play on the notion of booty calls. Yeah. And, um, uh, and they describe it as, it calls when a person, despite lack of romantic attraction to a suitor, chooses to go on a date to receive a free meal. This study examines predictors of uh, of a deceptive form of foodie call in the context of male-female dates. Wow. When a woman purposefully misrepresents her romantic interest in a man to dine at his expense.
1: Gosh, that's so interesting in this modern day and age. I mean, yeah.
0: Well, yes, yeah. Um, In two studies, they surveyed women regarding their foodie call behaviour Um, They looked at dark triad personality traits, um, traditional gender role beliefs. Mm -hmm. They looked at um, online dating history, where a lot of this um, emerges from. They found in the sample size um, between 23 and 33% of women had gone on a date knowing that they weren't going to pursue anything, but they wanted a night out and a meal.
1: Wow. So does that mean that on first dates men still pay the bill?
0: That's the implied... Yeah, so, um, so messy, what, what's happened it?
1: to this equality and 50-50 paying for dinner and so
0: on? I don't know, I don't know. But um, that caught my eye, as you can imagine.
1: So does that mean that if you want to test if your relationship's going to go anywhere, take you, take the girl to KFC and see if it goes any further? <laughs> well, <that's
0: right. laughs> that might have other implications. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's, uh, that's uh, what caught my eye during the week. Um why don't we have a bit of music and uh, then come back with our very special guest, uh, Dr. Hannah Robert. We'll be back in a moment. You're on Radio Therapy with uh, myself, Panel Beta, and Cyber Sue. Back in a moment.
1: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
0: And welcome back. Radio Therapy with myself, Panel Beta. And uh, Cyber Sue in the studio. And we're about to welcome our very special guest for the morning, um, Dr. Hannah Robert. Um, Dr. Robert is uh, joining us from uh, La Trobe Law School, um, where she's currently working on um, a, a significant interdisciplinary project um, where, where where she's looking at uh, transforming human societies research focus... Uh, sorry, the centre is funded by the Transforming uh, Research uh, transforming human society's research focus area. <laughs> oh, my brain is just not getting into gear this it's, morning. It's,
2: it's academic lingo.
0: Academic lingo. You'd think I'd be able to wrap my head around it, um, which involves, and this is, this is the connection of the social and the legal um, area, evolving the concept of legal parentage in Australian family law. Um, so we'll be talking about that in relation to the um, High Court judgment in just a moment. We'll also later on be talking um, to Dr. Robert with her second hat on for the morning um, regarding a book she released about uh, two years ago um, called Baby Lost. We'll get to that shortly. But welcome.
2: Thank you. Lovely to meet you. Is first, welcome Sorry. to Triple R. Is it your first time here? It is my first time here, but um, I have to say this is one of my favourite radio shows. Oh. Sunday morning,
0: oh.
2: <laughs> mooching around the kitchen, listening to this with my son, who's also here. We, but a bit we also
0: shy. have Ali in the studio. Do you want
2: to Good morning, Ali. <laughs> no. Who's very Go, shy, shy but delighted to be here.
0: Great. Um, we're really delighted to have you here now. There's this big story, well, I find it um, a big story, uh, coming out of the High Court regarding um, parenting and definitions thereof. Um, and it's the Robert Mason case, I guess we're calling it. But before we dig into the details of the case itself, let's set the scene. Um, what are the issues at the moment in recognising? donors and parent as parents.
2: So the the key thing that the Mason Mason um, case is about, nice. um, and I will I will note that these are all pseudonyms. Um, you can imagine for the kids involved, the last thing they want is for people to Google mm. their surname mm. and find out that this is this has all been part of their family history. So the the, the situation with um, egg and sperm donors at the moment is that we've got a comprehensive kind of consistent um, set of legislation across all the states and territories and that says that if a child is born by assisted conception so whether it's insemination at home or IVF in a clinic or insemination in a clinic um, then the person who's provided the sperm or eggs is not a legal parent unless... Um, they are either the the woman who's pregnant or the de facto partner or spouse of the person who's pregnant. So that's very clear across the states and territories. the trouble is there's a gap between that and the um, federal legislation which is the Family Law Act and so that's quite clear when the pregnant woman has a de facto partner or a spouse um, but it's, and it says in those cases then the donor, egg or sperm donor is not a legal parent but it's not so clear when it comes to single women.
0: Right, right. Um, and in this case, um, uh, Robert Mason, the, um, he was named on the birth certificate, right?
2: He was, yep, yeah, but um what i 've had a lot of questions about the birth certificate issue, and um, the difficulty is that a birth certificate is not definitive as to legal parentage, so there is a presumption that if you 're on the birth certificate, you are a legal parent, but that presumption can be rebutted or sort of overturned um, by by other laws, and so the key the key law would be, you know, at state or territory law um, that 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 law that says a sperm donor is not a parent, um, and at federal level by the Family Law Act.
0: Right, right. And what was the trigger that brought this before the court?
2: So you have a you have a family constellation where you have. Um, Two very old friends, so let's call them Robert um, and Susan. They'd been friends for years and years and years and had been talking on and off about having a child together. So Robert's gay, Susan's lesbian, um, and so they finally decided, right, let's do it. They um, had one insemination not quite turkey-based style, but, you know, at-home insemination, nothing happened. In the meantime, in the background, um, Susan's got a developing relationship with Margaret. And so by the time... The second, they have the second go at insemination. Margaret is living with Susan; um, they're in a relationship, um, but it's probably only four months old at that stage. And so, at the trial level, had Margaret been defined as a de facto partner, she would have been the other legal parent for this child. But um, the, at trial level, the trial judge said no; he um, this wasn't de facto public enough or established enough to be a de facto relationship. So that means Margaret. ..is out of the picture and is not a legal parent. Um, and so that means that we get into that fuzzy area where you have a, you know, so-called single woman... Yeah. Um, ..and a, a conflict of law between the state law, which says that, he, um, you know, Robert is not a legal parent, and the federal law, which kind of leaves this blurry space.
0: And, and I gather... Um, um, uh, ..the couple... Um, wanted to take the daughter to New Zealand?
2: Yes sorry I was I got getting that right? around that yeah so Susan's originally from New Zealand she's got elderly parents there and so after you know the kids are uh, I think nine and eight so they had had a subsequent child um Kids were around that age and they wanted to move to New Zealand. And so at that point, um, Robert had been involved with both children all their lives. He'd been called Daddy by both of them, um, had regular time with them. He was um, he helped out at their tuck shop at school. Um, and so he was pretty devastated at the idea of the, the, the kids both going to New Zealand with their mums.
0: And so as soon as geography comes into the picture... that's where this issue of the distinction between parentage and parenting seems to be at play under law.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So what's interesting, um, a lot of jurisdictions like in the US, if you're not a legal parent, well, you can't um, try and get an order for time with the child, for example. Whereas Australia, we do have quite a flexible system in that even if you're not a legal parent if you're a person concerned with the care and well-being and development of the child you can apply for um parenting orders to have time with the kid etc so it's there's no contest that margaret and robert would absolutely fall into that category and would be able to seek orders on that basis including orders to stop the relocation but it's, it's all you're always going to be in a stronger position mm-hmm. if you're a legal parent because once you're a legal parent you automatically have joint parental responsibility for the child. So that means you you share decision making as to, you know, any medical decisions for the child, any medical treatment, um, where the child goes to school, who the child spends time with, those kind of decisions. And in in deciding parenting orders the court has to look at the best interests of the child and What's happened in, um, you know, when, when the Howard government was in, there was a very strong father's rights lobby and one of the provisions added into that was a, um, that a priority um, factor in best interest is the benefit to the child of having a meaningful relationship with both parents.
0: So d- did the fact that this was um, a child as a result of sperm donorship have any implication in the court's approach to it, or was it treated um, as as any child uh, any family law dispute over the um, child?
2: Absolutely, it was really significant because I mean that um, assisted conception kind of is the trigger between, um, I guess, these special provisions for assisted conception children. So under the state laws and um, section sixty-eight under the Family Law Act. Um, Whereas, if you're if it's a heterosexually conceived child, well, then um, the court just applies the ordinary definition of of, of parent.
0: Um, and w- like with with that in mind, I guess um, how does the lang- So there's the language of the law dealing mm. dealing with yeah. parent. Were there doctors involved in the case? Were they called on um, to speak? And what language were they using when they were talking about the donor, just the donor?
2: Um, look, that's a really interesting question because they, they, they did an insemination at home, just a little syringe with no needle yeah, right. on it. <laughs> um, they didn't need a doctor. And this is the case with plenty of queer families. You don't necessarily need a doctor if you're just doing insemination. Sure. Um, and so, to my knowledge, I don't think they did have um, any doctors called often when there is a parenting dispute they have something called a family report and so that's usually authored by either a social worker or a psychologist Hmm. um, and who sits down with you know observes the the family mechanics um, sits down and talks to the child talks to the parent but to my knowledge there wasn't family report in this case and i find that quite extraordinary yeah there wasn't
0: yeah i i don't know was it a home birth or was it a hospital birth i gather he was there at the birth
2: yeah no my i think it was a hospital birth so um i mean the normal process for filling in a birth certificate is that you have you know a midwife or a doctor certify the birth so but that's of course the only thing they can certify is that the baby was was delivered of this particular person yeah Mm. um so DNA testing didn't certainly didn't happen at that point, and so I mean I don't know anyone who's had a child. You come home from hospital, you got all the forms, and you have to fill them right. in, and, um, and then send it into the register of Birth, deaths, and marriages. So they really were able to do
1: that without any kind of medical
2: medical intervention.
1: It does kind of strike me as interesting in this case because they named him on the birth certificate, and I do think I, I do wonder whether that's a little bit. Um, probably not the norm, and mm. it kind of. I kind of wonder whether they're wanting the best of both worlds because they're naming him as the father. He's involved. He goes to tuck shop, and then suddenly, mm. when it doesn't suit, hey, you've got no rights, and we're going to go and move to New Zealand. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just, yeah, yeah.
2: It, uh, look, it it is actually a very unusual yeah. c- scenario. So, f- so um, I've got my colleague Professor Fiona Kelly has done a lot of research with lesbian families and single mother by choice families um, and so she's able to say with some confidence that this is this is quite unusual mm, to put a okay. donor on the birth certificate um, and so what it, it does really bring up those questions of what was intended yes. um, at the time of conception. I, I mean, it's important to note that at the time that this child was born, it wasn't possible to have two mums on the birth certificate. Mm. Um, so it was really a choice of only having one or, or the father written.
0: Um, the uh, I gather that they were good. Mates, right, at the time, as you would need to be in, I guess, that situation. And then they had a falling out. So, on one level, it's just looking like a nasty breakup. Um, is is, yeah. is that a fair reading?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, you just think, oh, how sad that you know mm. this this family actually worked well for for a number of years, and then this this split has happened. And yeah, it is a family breakdown essentially. Um, and the kind of difference that I think the courts have to get their heads around is that um, not all families have that sexual relationship <laughs> between 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 parties. And you know, queer families are going out and. Doing family in different ways, and so the courts have to catch up to that.
0: Do we have it? You say that. Do we have any sense of the the number? How how prevalent
2: um, is there? I mean, there wouldn't be any record of it, would there? The only stat I can pull out of my um, brain is that I think in the census, at least twenty five percent of lesbian families have kids, right? And I think it's um, maybe uh, ten percent of. gay male couples have kids. um, And then there's an even bigger proportion who are intending to have kids. So, I mean, there has been through kind of the 90s and 2000s what's been called the gayby boom Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that this is something a lot of queer families are doing, and a lot of them, some are going through clinics, but a lot of them are DIY, and they're doing it through cooperative relationships with known donors.
0: So the courts may. Sorry, Sybissa, you go.
1: Oh no. Go. Okay. So I, I guess it, w- the other thing that came up in your story is that it was a single. She was. Technically, a single female, and it's not necessarily gay couples, because in your scenario, it's the fact that she wasn't in a relationship, wasn't it?
2: Well, okay, so this is really significant because yeah. um, you know, even though for for Susan, we have some queries about whether she really was, in fact, single, um, but our biggest growing um, demographic taking up assisted reproductive services is single women. Mm. Um, and so for them, it really throws, throws things into disarray. I mean, it's really uncertain whether they may have a sperm donor come into the scene and go, oh, hi, I'm the dad now, and uh, actually, no, you can't have a passport for the child without my signature.
1: Mm.
0: So the court's made its decision um, and it's left a lot of ambiguity. Is that is that how we sum that up?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, it's great... For, I mean, for the family involved they know where they stand now that's fairly clear and they're going to have to make those decisions about whether they do um move well they can't move to New Zealand now but for everyone else it's fundamentally uncertain.
0: So where does it leave what would um with your law hat on what would the law advise somebody who's thinking about this what would What's what's the black letter law on it? You know what would what would be the advice? And I know, um,
2: and I have to always couch this with, sure. you know, um, this is not legal advice. Yes. This is um, <laughs> this is legal information. Um, but certainly, friends, if I was talking to a friend about it, um, who is a single parent or who was technically single at the time of conception, I would say um, you really want to be careful about how much contact you have with a donor. Um, because part of what the trial judge drew on was that involvement. I would say certainly do not put him on a birth certificate um, unless, you know, you do have that kind of cooperative Mm. agreement and that's what you want. Um, But, yeah, I, I I would really urge caution. And, I mean, I think it's a sad thing because... You know, a lot of... I mean, a lot of the things queer families are doing is kind of fostering these yeah. relationships that are somewhere in between where a donor is involved and is family but is not a parent and this really makes those relationships a lot harder it means people are going to be a lot more cautious
1: sure. and i and the, and the other part of that also is that people are encouraged now like the laws have changed over time haven't they where people where people can contact their donor and so Absolutely. in some ways that's that openness is encouraged so that's a real conflict in a way isn't it?
2: Absolutely well the day after the judgement I received an email from VARTA which is the Victorian Assisted Reproductive Treatment Authority Um, and they run workshops called Time to Tell workshop Mm. and I've been to some of these because this is um, my area Um, and the thing is that there is this real policy push for um, people with donor-conceived cho- children to make contact with their donors, and you know, mm. um, and so this this really says that you're, you're kind of forced into a difficult choice. You, right. you know, yeah. um, you can make contact, but it may have legal but repercussions. Limited. Yes, yeah.
0: That's fascinating, and I, you know, I, 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 all sorts of questions are going on in my mind about you know how. Um, this definition of parenting now comes into it and um, I understand the law thinks of uh, the child's best interests and then my mind starts to go to, well, that starts to talk in a way about um, the child as an adult in some undetermined time in the future where they mm. want to know their parent. Mm. In this case, the child knows the donor because they spent the formative years of their life there, but I guess it would be more common if the advice has been the donor should be kept at a distance Mm. to avoid these problems, Mm. um, that the best interests of the child question becomes Mm. a little bit muddy again.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing I would say is that um, who is a legal parent? Um, There was actually an amendment to the law in 2011 that took um, the question of legal parentage out of that. Best in- so there is a rule across the Family Law Act that the best interests of the child must be paramount and this amendment took legal parentage out of that and said, no, the best interests of the child do not have to be paramount when you're des- deciding who is a legal parent. And But I would agree that it really does set up this tension where... Um, and I, I actually think we need to understand best interest in two kind of distinct things, that children do have an interest in that knowledge about their genetic history and, you know, they're curious and often they'll want to meet the person, etc. Mm. but they also have an interest in some kind of stability and they have an interest in the family the parents they rely on and that they regard as parents their kind of lived family they've got Mm. an interest in that being legally protected and in those parents feeling secure enough to make decisions and to to prioritize their 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 kid
0: complicated stuff in so many ways (laughs) as family law I, i dips my lid to people who are like yourself who are dealing with it
2: you are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia.
0: And welcome back, Radio Therapy, with uh, Panel Beater and Cyber Sue this morning. Um, our special guest is uh, Dr. Hannah Robert, and we've been talking about um, the decision in the High Court last week um, dealing with uh, sperm ownership and questions of parentage and parenting to change gear a little bit now but we're staying with our our special guest dr robert um to reflect on a book and an experience um she had uh, some time ago the book we're referring to is baby lost um and it explores grief hope and the legal aftermath of losing an unborn child um uh, after a car accident i believe but Let's hear Hannah talk to us about that. Uh, Hannah, thanks for staying on with us to talk about um, this experience because it is bringing in a, a lived experience of your own with your legal um, attention to um, definitions of parenthood and the child.
2: Absolutely, and um, look, it was it was a. Funny thing, I'll tell I'll tell the story Please, yeah. um, and then you'll you sort of get how um, the lived experience and the legal stuff intermeshed. So um, we, uh, in 2009, so 10 years ago, we were planning a move to Melbourne. I had a new job lined up at La Trobe University and it was a year of big things. So um, very shortly after saying yes to the job, I found out that I was pregnant um, and a little bit related to the last segment, this was a donor-conceived child, um, a known donor, um, and I ha- had a female partner at that at that time, and um, so it was fantastic, exciting news after a long, long time of trying, um, and so by the time. Uh, December came around. We packed up the entire house, you know, moved with the moving truck down stressful. to Melbourne. Yes, very stressful. <laughs> sp- as you started off saying, um, and we got to Melbourne. We had a gorgeous Christmas with family. We we're staying at my dad's house before we could move into our new house. Um, and we, on the twenty seventh of December, we went for a picnic with some friends. And uh, I went to visit my co- We went to visit my cousin. So we we're in the f- in the car with me very you know very 8 months pregnant my partner my two stepdaughters in the back seat who were 14 and 15 at the time and heading up Warrigal Road and I saw a car on my side of the road heading towards me and um yeah I I braked and screamed and but it was far too late for for any of that and um, so we had a head on collision um, and the you know, lots of outcomes from that, as you can imagine. Sure. So, um, the, the the really big one that that book is about is that um, our our baby died in in utero because of because of the accident. The placenta ruptured. Right. Um, the placenta kind of came off the wall of the uterus. Um, and so, you know, I was trucked off to Royal Melbourne, my partner to the Alfred, the girls to the Children's Hospital, um, and so the. As it kind of came out, um, it turned out that this accident was the result of a dangerous driver. There'd been a kind of road rage incident that he was kind of having a dispute with someone else and then he'd rapidly um, side kind of swiped... ..well, kind of gone into the right lane to do an aggressive overtake and had side-swiped a four-wheel drive that had been then knocked into our path. Um, And so, of course, the police charged him with dangerous driving... And what happened was that um, there could be, you know, I think it was five counts of dangerous driving for the driver of the four-wheel drive and then for me, my partner, and two stepkids. But what he couldn't be charged with was dangerous driving causing death mm-hmm. um, because even though we'd lost a daughter, she hadn't drawn breath. she she Her heart had stopped in utero. And so... Um, yeah, she didn't. Um, it didn't meet the definition of a legal death, and therefore there couldn't be um, a separate criminal charge. And so, I mean, the papers kind of picked up on that within, within. I think I was still in rehab at that point, because um, I had quite a lot of other injuries. Um, and there was, while I was still in hospital, there was an article in The Age where you had someone from, um, I think it was a conservative Christian organisation saying, well, we shouldn't be surprised that in Victoria, where we've just um, decriminalised abortion, that we have this disregard for unborn life. Yeah. And I I was Furious! Mm. Oh, I was I livid because he was someone trying to make mileage mm. out of our loss um, that we were still wrapping our heads around, and m- making mileage out of it to kind of question women's reproductive rights. Um, and so I kind of left it at that. I, I wrote a letter to the to, to the Age about it, which got published, kind of saying, "Back off." Yeah, really. Um, and then I kind of left it and and then it was n- quite a few years later um that I had friends because we had lived in Sydney um and we'd moved down, so I had uh, friends from Sydney kind of calling me and messaging me saying, telling me about zoe's law um are you happy for me yes, to please explain a bit about yeah, so zoe's law zoe's law um Zoe, Zoe was a baby who was also stillborn. This is awful circumstances that are very similar to ours actually. So a woman, Brodie Donegan, Christmas Day just two days before our accident, so uh, 25th of December 2009, she was um, seven months pregnant going for a walk on Christmas morning um, and a drug-affected driver mounted the curb and slammed into her and her baby Zoe was also stillborn, um, and exactly similar similar kind of treatment of the legal um, outcome. In that, um, in New South Wales, they couldn't charge the driver with um, David uh, dangerous driving causing death, um, and so Brody and her partner had gotten very involved in calling for law reform to change that because they did want a charge of dangerous driving causing death, and. And so I had to really sit down and think mm-hmm. about that and work, wrap my head around it. And um, I think, in, you know, being a lawyer, I really had much lower expectations of the law <laughs> in terms I don't expect... <laughs> I know, it's a bit sad. It's not encouraging, is yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, What I guess what I mean is emotionally in that I don't expect the, the law to supply me with kind of any emotional closure. Um, for us, you know, when the trial happened, um, my partner and I each provided victim impact statements. I read mine out in the court and that felt really important. For mm. me, that mm. made our daughter visible mm. in, in, in in the process. And... Um, you know, for me, my fo- we made a very deliberate decision early on that we won't go- weren't going to focus on the offender. Our focus was going to be on our healing and mm. our grief and taking care of our girls and, mm. um, and then when the time was ready, trying to get pregnant again. Yeah. Um, and so when I had those friends contacting me saying, oh, Zoe's law is happening, I had to sit down and think. And really, I mean, where I came to was that I very much supported... Um, Brody and her family in this you know in the making the point that there is a gap here like uh, you know a stillbirth is not an injury mm. it's 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 I had yeah. injuries <laughs> but quite a stillbirth different. is is something quite different and I do see that there's a gap in the law but um what the led proposed legislation did was it defined a fetus in utero as a legal person for the for the um, purposes of certain offences, and to me, that was absolutely disastrous mm-hmm. for 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 women for women's legal personhood. You know, for any pregnant person's legal personhood. Because the moment that you say a fetus in utero is a legal person, then let's say the doctor who um, is uh, helping a woman make a decision about whether to have a cesarean or not, the doctor might decide, "Oh, this baby needs a cesarean." She's saying, "No, I'm going to override." Her decision. Right. Um, it may... Because you know, the
0: law doesn't demarcate between the rights of the mother and the rights of the child in that instance. Is that so what you're
2: saying? So, I mean, OK, so the best way, I think, to describe it is that our current model is that a pregnant, per- pregnant person is one legal person until the moment of birth and then pop, two legal people. Yeah. Um, and right. what this was doing was to say, actually... Um, for some offences some sometimes you'll have two separate legal persons um, and and we've seen this play out in the US in particular as one of one of the a number of states have got legislation similar to this that defines a fetus as a person and what you see inevitably is that it overrides the the the, the basic bodily um, integrity of of the woman because um, you can't you know if she doesn't consent to a, to a treatment, you can't go in and rescue the fetus without... you know, Mm. abusing her rights. Um, And so, yeah, I I mean, I think it's a a difficult thing. I think law needs to change, but I think fetal legal personhood is an absolute disaster for women's rights.
0: Um, Can you update us on, in the previous uh, discussion, um, uh, we were making a distinction between state and federal jurisdiction and the way the law deals with it there. Mm. Is that a similar issue in this case
2: Um, All criminal law is at a state territory level. So that's why um, we have very similar provisions in Victoria and New South Wales. Um, The only difference really is um, that uh, in Victoria it's serious injury, in New South Wales it's grievous bodily harm. But I guess where it gets interesting is that abortion is also at a state and territory level, and so Victoria has decriminalised abortion, which was a, an, an, an excellent an excellent yeah. development. New South Wales has not yet. There have been number number of proposals, but it means that um, abortion remains on the criminal code. We've kind of got a, a, a common law loophole, so that if a judge finds it's in the woman's best interests. Sorry. <laughs> um, to if, if if it's necessary for her health, including her social mental yep. um, health, um, the doctor can give give an abortion. But that's very it's quite tenuous, and True. it's relying on a court judgment from the late '60s. Um, and so for doctors, this was this was really scary. It meant that they w- might not be able to offer women those services, or that they would feel that if they didn't. Override a woman's decision and provide fetal surgery or force her to have a cesarean, they could be sued.
0: Yeah, um, Dr. Robert, it's uh, really important that um, this story that you've just shared gets out there. Your book's still available. It's called Babies Lost." A baby lost. Baby lost I beg your pardon. Right. Um, baby lost. Um, if people are interested, and maybe we can put a link up on our Facebook page. Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. It's so been much, wonderful beater, uh, and to meet you Cyber and talk Sue. with you.
0: Um, Cyber Sue, thank you very much.
1: Well, I was, didn't really say much today, did I? <laughs> oh,
0: <no. laughs> um, well, you did uh, open up saying you just weren't feeling yourself today. Yep. No. This has been a podcast from 3 R 102.7 FM in Melbourne.
2: Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.